And here we go. Um, it was truly a masterpiece. I don't know about all that. Ugh, absolutely the worst movie ever. Hands down, bar none, the greatest action spectacular ever. Well, uh, the other one just stuck them up. Are you asking me? I promise I'm not going to sing this time around. Welcome to Don't Be Crazy Podcast. I'm Justin Kavanagh. With me as always, Mr. Zachary Rancourt. Here we discuss and dissect what makes a film past our present absolutely amazing or just pure rubbish. All that we ask of each other is don't be crazy. Don't be crazy, Zach. Here's Zachy. <laughs> don't I know it. Yeah, you I gotta mean, put your face up close to the camera. Ah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Maybe you want to have axes and chop some doors down. I'm good at chopping doors down. You good are. at breaking down doors and barriers. Dude, I swung an axe once and I was winded. <laughs> I, I, uh, I swing axes all day long. All right. Ooh, it is hard to do. Now, I'm very excited because joining us this week, we have a very special guest. None other than the super mega ultra Stephen Alva Wood from our friends over at the Horror Squad podcast. How you doing, Mr. Steve? I'm doing awesome. Uh, I'm actually swinging a polo mallet, like the book. So uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, which it doesn't have the same effect, really. It's uh, <laughs> it doesn't. And we saw that in the the made for TV shining version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did, and it, it just looks ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it looks like he's in a fun house or something. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, thank you for inviting me on. It's it's an honor. Love the podcast. So I'm excited to do this. Thank you. I'm excited to have you. You have been had, and it's amazing. Last time you were here, we did what? Scream. Screen, yeah, yeah, yeah. You like the horror movie now? Do you want to break away from the horror podcast? Do you want to do like other movies, or should we just keep you on only when we do horror <laughs> stuff? Horror, horror is like uh, the genre that I'm, I guess, most comfortable in. I mean, I watch all the genres as well. It's not like I just watch horror films, but it's just something that I like discussing uh, and you sure. know, having fun with. It's uh, just a cool little community, and it's awesome. Yeah, you like the blood and guts and gore and in, in your teeth. It relaxes me for some reason. <laughs> you know, like if I watch a drama or something like that, I get all tense or, you know, but for some reason, horror just, I don't know. <laughs> great. After a hard day's work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's great. I'm the opposite. I have to be in the special mood for horror films. I don't know why. It's weird. But anyway, um, again, thank you for for joining us. Very excited about that. Uh, Mr. Zach, I noticed that you have uh, been busy watching motion picture shows. <laughs> like, really I'm a busy, busy man, Justin. I'm a busy man. <laughs> I just picture like Jim Carrey and Batman Forever, where he's just sitting in the chair and just absorbing all this information. And uh, when he's got the kind of hook jacked into the box, and you're just watching all kinds of fun stuff. So, why don't you just tell the audience what you've been watching this past week? All right, I'll, I'll just rapid fire him. So I've had a lot of downtime. Well, not downtime, but I mean, I just haven't done anything, man. We had two snow days where you couldn't really do much. So I powered through. I did a Two Towers and Return of the King little mini marathon. And I mean, those are the extended editions. So that took like eight or nine hours. Creed 2, uh, The Running Man, Kick-Ass. I was trying to watch Kick-Ass 2, but I could not find it anywhere. Uh, Tremors. I watched Easy A, and then I started watching Malcolm in the Middle after the WandaVision intro kind of reinvigorated my love of that show. So those are great. Uh, I just want to say about Easy A, I really like that movie. I only saw it one time, great. and I think Emma Stone is fantastic in that movie. She is so funny. So I like it. But anyways, those are all streaming. She's like a harlot. <laughs> I guess you could call me a harlot. <laughs> I love her dynamic yeah. with her parents. They're such good parents, and they're so fun. When I have kids, I want to be like that. I want to be the cool parents. 
I now you said that you watched Two Towers and Return of the King. I don't even know if I could ever do that. I have to watch all three. I can't just watch one or two I know, in this case. I, I usually do two, except during the holidays, I uh, kind of fell off the wagon, I guess. <laughs> and I was trying to watch all three and I messed up and I only watched uh, Fellowship. And then I watched the first part of Two Towers, first half of Two Towers. And then so I was like, ah, that's not going to work. So I, I just did Two Towers and the Return of the King. Mm-hmm. But I mean, still, they're still amazing. They're still super long, too. Sure. And you have them in like 18K now, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have to insert like contacts into your eyes to watch them. <laughs> yeah, <That's so laughs> you got to take a red pill to go to go watch them too. Sure, Tremors. I love Tremors. First time I saw that was in San Francisco in like 1989. <laughs> Crazy of all places. That's yeah, pretty good. The Graboids. I like. Re- I forgot Reba McIntyre was in it. I was waiting for her to sing something. She's the lady with the guns. Yeah, yeah. Bert's wife. <laughs> Bert's wife. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember her name. <laughs> yeah, I forgot it too. And that's the only one I've ever seen. There's what, like five or six of these Tremors movies now, and I, I've only ever seen the first one. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't seen the first one in a very long time. The second one was actually what started me into the Tremors game. Mm. And then uh, those Graboids were weird because they were above ground and they were mobile. So they were crazy. <laughs> Yeesh. All right. What about you, Steve? Last time you had like five recommendations. You didn't want to tell us what you were watching because you're Cloak and Dagger. Instead, you told us what to watch. Do you have recommendations this time around? Or are you going to tell us? Are you going to give us a peek into the life of your horror <laughs> theater? Uh, well, they're kind of one of the same this week. Um, uh, on the horror front, I we just my podcast just reviewed Saint Maud, which is A24's latest film. Uh, they're known for stuff like Hereditary and uh, Midsommar and the the Witch and all that stuff. Uh, it's typical A24 fanfare, uh, slow burn, but damn, the end is insane. So I would highly recommend it. It's just one of those. Crazy horror films. Um, another one I watched, The Queen of Black Magic, the remake. Fantastic film. If you are easily scared by horror films, maybe stay away. It's one of the scariest <laughs> films I've seen in years, I'd say. Really well made, and it's got some good frights. And the last one I watched is uh, Vampire's Kiss. Did you get scared? Were you were, were, you, were uh, you scared you watching know, it really fast? Not really, time? but... Uh, you know, I got my blood pumping a little bit. It's, uh, there's some very tense ghosts. Yeah. Are, scared, I mean, are you desensitized at this point now? Yeah. I mean, it, it'll, it'll take something pretty big to scare me. But um, this one came as close as any other film has in recent times. So uh, kudos to that. But it really depends what scares you, too. Like, for me, it's more paranormal ghosty stuff that will scare me rather than home invasions or animals or whatever that other people are scared of. Uh, yeah, so this one's a good one. And uh, Vampire's Kiss. Have you guys seen this one? It's uh, Nicolas Cage at his absolute <laughs> best. <laughs> if you, I know what it is. Yeah, if you are at all a fan of Nic- Nicolas Cage, this is him at his wildest, craziest. Just It's it's a must-watch for people because it is so friggin' cool and so funny. Uh, this movie could not work with any other actor. This had to be Nic- Nicolas Cage. He's perfect for the role and could not recommend it enough. It's uh, from 1988. Good good times there. And uh, outside of that, outside of the horror front, I've been hooked to a TV show called Animal Kingdom. And I uh, just love it. Just It's got like Sons of Anarchy meets uh, Point Break type vibes and really enjoying it. So the animals ride on surfboards and motorcycles? Yeah, it's like Zootopia, but uh, with surfing. <laughs> <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, no, it's awesome. All it's right. a great, great show. I like animals. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't even really know why it's called an, Animal Kingdom. It's weird. <laughs> There's like no animals in the, in the whole thing. It's just one of them things. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. What can you do? Well, good. I've actually, uh, I hadn't watched a whole lot of movies lately, but uh, like two nights ago, I think it was two nights ago, I watched Dr. Sleep, uh, the sequel to The Shine that we are about to talk about. And uh, I was blown away. I had no idea it was going to be as good as it was. And I was just glued to my TV for two hours and change, I suppose. And I loved every second of it. I was like, literally like... um. The what's the guy's name? Mike Flanagan. He is amazing. I just love his storytelling. And uh, what was that one? The one that was on Netflix, like the Haunting of Hill House. I think he did that. Yeah. I really enjoyed that too. So, uh, and I think just the whole uh, expanding on the lore of The Shining was probably a good idea because unless you're taking a fucking course at a university on The Shining, you're going to miss a lot. And so it was kind of refreshing to sort of just get a better understanding of not only the overlook hotel but just the powers that exist within danny yeah that's a very adequate sequel and i was i was very surprised to to watch it there are a a few scenes that i had a hard time watching i won't spoil it or anything but i mean i'm sure you guys know but i really enjoyed it when they got to the overlook hotel i'm like oh my god this is so cool and Rebecca Ferguson was amazing as uh, Rose the Hat. Uh, loved her accent. Just loved her in general. She was terrifying. And I like the whole, I don't remember, I can't remember what the bad guys are called. It starts with a K, but uh, they were There's super like Crow cool. Crow and. Yeah, Crow is a really cool guy. and uh, Crow and Reggie or. <laughs> <laughs> P-Roy, Leroy. Rooster, Tease, I don't know. But uh, and then and the little yeah. the, the little girl was was awesome. She was so cool when Rose goes to her house in the dream. I won't say anything else, but I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's dude. It's yeah. a good one. No, I think it, it, it did a really good job. And, and it, it had Stephen King's blessing because essentially and correct me if I'm wrong. He wrote Dr. Sleep as kind of like a hey, Kubrick messed up my movie. So this is how it actually happened. And then they took a lot of what Flanagan did is he took a lot of what Stephen King wrote and then he took a lot of what the movie did. So it was like the best of both worlds and he had this awesome amalgamation. So it's super cool. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's freaking awesome, man. I, I it's shining was one of those stories. I'm like, I never want to see a sequel to this because they're just going to ruin it. And when I went to see Dr. Sleep, it was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is so good. And like you said, it was a nice combo of the movie that we're familiar with, but also Stephen King's story. So it was cool to see, uh, all that come together and uh, successfully awesome film crow daddy snake bite andy apron annie bury the chunk grandpa flick silent sari yeah those are some of the fun names that we couldn't remember <laughs> diesel <laughs> doug wanted to be zach the glasses <laughs> rusty nail candy cane rusty oh. shackleford <laughs> yeah my goodness well there you go well that's great so as i mentioned this week we're actually gonna be doing the shining from 1980 directed by stanley kubrick who you might know from barry linden 2001 a space odyssey (laughs) eyes wide shut oh i hate that movie a clockwork orange (laughs) full metal jacket and dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and love the atomic bomb i think is the full title Mm -hmm. it escapes me uh, the book was uh, written by Stephen King, as I mentioned, and then you also have uh, Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson for the motion picture show, 
The film stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers, who you might know as the voice of Jazz for all you Gen 1 Transformers fans out there. Um, Until he died in, I believe, 86, 87. Might have to fact check me on that, but uh, there you have it. Uh, critical reception. I do not have in front of me. I apologize. <laughs> no, I apologize. I did not. I don't think I linked it. That's my bad. Oh, it's all good. No, it's here. Uh, Matthew Rosa from Salon.com says the classic Stanley Kubrick film isn't just scary. It is also in its own odd way defined by a hopeful perspective on life and death. Wow. I don't know about all that. <laughs> Tony Black said, from Cultural Conversation says a true masterpiece, which I'm sure you two will agree on. <laughs> Justin Brown, not to be confused with Justin Cavender, which is me, uh, from Media Popcorn says, it just didn't speak to me. I thought it was way too long and a little too slow pace. Wow. He just watched it on December 10th, 2019. Gave it a two out of five. These kids today. It's not like it's WandaVision. You got to get through three and a half episodes before it gets amazing. (laughs) But what can you do? Uh, Bill Newcott from Movies for the Rest of Us. 1980 review says, excuse me, aside from an occasional flash of brilliance, it is tedious and the fatal blow, not all that scary. Wow. Well, there you go. (laughs) Here's here's another. So since we all like this movie for the most part, um, I just want to go over a couple more bad ones. (laughs) So it gives you something to argue about. It's good for the gander, as it were. (laughs) Uh, Ernest Leo Grande from the New York Daily News says, shock effect and graphic imagery don't compensate for the sense of pointlessness and even distaste that is left at the end of the movie. Wow. So there you go. Uh, Bob Thomas from Associated Press says, Kubrick is a master of visual images and many of the scenes display his brilliance, but much of the suspense ends in an anticlimax. And Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall seem overextended in trying to maintain the terror. Which I think we'll probably talk about, uh, that overextension uh, and probably just pure exhaustion is what we were left with with a lot of their takes. I know that I'm pretty sure both of you guys watched that documentary and you know all about the movie and the behind the scenes and how Stanley Kubrick likes to do 85 billion fucking takes to get the part right and... He was going with the much later takes in the film. So after they've done a scare scene 40 goddamn times, that's the one that he went with, which explains why they look so overacted and exhausted because they've been doing it for like 18 goddamn hours and they're over it. And they have literally exhausted their craft to the point where this is what they were left with. And I think that's probably what he was going for. (laughs) Like he wanted them to be exhausted and just not themselves. Because I'm pretty sure that's basically what the Overlook does, is it it takes you away from who you really are. Or maybe it even gets to who you really are. Maybe it gets you, shakes you to your core to where it brings out the worst in you. Look at you ana- analyzing this film. You're like one of those people on Room 237, that documentary. <laughs> <laughs> You're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Uh, so moving on, uh, let's see here. Uh, the budget was $19 million. How about that? Opening weekend, it did a whopping $622,000, and that was on May 26, 1980, uh, most likely Memorial Weekend. In the United States, this film grossed $45.3 million, and then worldwide, you're looking at a whopping 
there you have it. Of course, that was 40 years ago, uh, coming up on 41. And uh, yeah, it's the audience has time to just sort of sit there in their own sick and analyze this movie to death. And I can't wait to hear your guys' thoughts. Zach, give me some trivia. Uh, it's also available streaming if anybody wants to watch it. It is available on HBO Max. I own it like in three different formats, but I watched it in ultra high def 4K on Vudu, but it is available on HBO Max. That is how I watched it on HBO Max. How did you watch it, Steve? I own it as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I have a couple, <laughs> couple copies of it as well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, We don't have HBO Max here, so it was really my only option. And uh, oh. You got the beta... The, you got the VHS, you got the Betamax, you got the Laserdisc. The lasers, yeah. I was watching it. I was watching it on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray all at the same time, trying to sync it all up. But anyway, fun trivia. There you go. Fun trivia for you. So, according to Shelley Duvall, the infamous "Here's Johnny" scene took three days to film and the use of sixty doors. These sixty doors for that—that's just crazy. For the scene in which Jack breaks down that door, uh, the props department built a door that could be easily broken however jack nicholson had worked as a volunteer fire marshal and tore it apart far too easily the props department were then forced to build a stronger door huh how about that real swings to get jack nicholson in the right agitated mood he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks which he hates cheese sandwich i like a good cheese sandwich (laughs) is that it uh, bread and cheese yeah i guess so hey there's gotta be something else on there maybe some mustard uh, so The Shining was eventually readapted as a 1997 miniseries that followed Stephen King's book more closely because of his dissatisfaction with Stanley Kubrick's adaptation. However, Kubrick owned the rights to the 1980 adaptation. So in order for King to get the right re- right to readapt his own book into the miniseries, Kubrick requ- required that he sign a legally binding contract that forced King to no longer be able to bring up frequent public criticism of Kubrick's film, save for the sole commentary that he was disappointed with Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance as though he had been insane before his arrival at the Overlook Hotel. So (laughs) it's kind of like you can do this, but you can't talk shit about me. So (laughs) I like that. Um, There were so many changes. Have you guys seen the made for TV? I haven't, but sorry, real quick. I did. I I did. And I I reviewed it on my, uh, on my podcast. It's uh, four hours long and uh, it's it's slow. (laughs) There's a lot of pointless scenes that they put in there for no reason, but I'm glad I watched it because it does show King's vision, um, whether, you know, for better or worse. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but let's put it that way. Sure. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, I have not seen it. I don't know if I want to see it. It's, I don't have four. I don't have four bad. hours to waste unless it's Lord of the Rings. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> or The Shining twice. But um, where did I leave off? Uh, oh, there were so many changes to the script. Uh, during shooting that Jack Nicholson claimed he stopped reading it. He would read only the new pages that were given to him each day. (laughs) Stanley Kubrick known for his compulsiveness and numerous retakes got the difficult shot of blood pouring from the elevators in only three takes. This would be unremarkable if it weren't for the fact that the shot took nine days to set up every time the doors opened and the blood poured out. Kubrick would say it doesn't look like blood in the end. The shot took approximately a year to get right. (laughs) And finally, Stephen King was quite disappointed in the final film. While admitting that Stanley Kubrick's visuals were stunning, he said that uh, was surface and not substance. He often described the film as a fancy car without an engine. Jeez, he's a dick. Oh, my God. Sorry. And I don't have a freaking (laughs) 
synopsis. Give me a second. I'm not good at life. Um, let's see. Okay, it's okay. That's, that's easy. Here you we go. know the movie. Just tell us in your own words. <laughs> a <What> guy <laughs> eats cheese sandwiches, see, and he gets upset. <laughs> so, um, writer Jack Torrance, arri- <laughs> writer Jack Jack Torrance arrives at the remote Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains to be interviewed for the position of winter caretaker. The hotel, which opened in, in 1909 and was built on a site of a Native American burial ground, closes during the snowed-in months. Once hired, Jack plans to use the hotel's solitude to write. Manager Stuart Ullman warns Jack about the hotel's reputation. A previous caretaker, Charles Grady, killed his family and himself. Jack is nevertheless impressed with the hotel and takes the job. In Boulder, Jack's son, Danny, has a premonition about the hotel and Jack's wife, Wendy, tells a doctor about Danny's imaginary friend, Tony. She also reveals that Jack is a recovering alcoholic who once injured Danny in a drunken rage. When the family moves into the hotel, head chef Dick Holleran surprises Danny by telepathically offering him ice cream. Holleran explains that Danny or to Danny that he and his grandmother shared this te- uh, telepathic ability, which he calls shining. Holleran tells Danny that the hotel has a shine and its own memories. He also tells Danny to stay away from room 237. A month passes, and while Jack's writing goes nowhere, Danny and, and Wendy explore the hotel's hedge maze, and Holleran goes to Florida with some sweet artwork in his room. Wendy learns that the phone lines are out due to the heavy snowfall. Danny has frightening visions while... Jack becomes prone to violent outbursts as his mental health deteriorates. Danny, Danny's curiosity about room 237 overtakes him when he sees the room's door open. Later, Wendy finds Jack screaming during a nightmare while asleep at his typewriter. After she awakens him, Jack says he dreamed that he killed her and Danny. Danny arrives visibly traumatized and bruised. Wendy accuses Jack of abusing him, which Jack denies. Jack wanders into the hotel's gold room and meets a ghostly bartender named Lloyd, to whom he complains about his marriage. Wendy tells Jack that Danny told her a crazy woman in room 237 attempted to strangle him. Jack investigates room 237 and encounters a dead woman's ghost, but he tells Wendy that he saw nothing. Wendy and Jack argue over whether Danny should be removed from the hotel, and Jack returns to the gold room, which is now filled with ghosts attending a ball. He meets a ghostly waiter who identifies himself as as Delbert Grady. The ghost informs Jack that Danny has reached out to Holleran using his talent, and Jack says that he must correct his wife and child. After telepathically sensing Danny's fear, Holleran flies back to Colorado. Danny calls out, Red Rum, and goes into another trance, referring to himself as Tony. Wendy discovers that Jack has been typing pages filled with the phrase, All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. She begs a psychotic Jack to leave the hotel with Danny, but he threatens her. Give me the bat, Wendy. Wendy knocks him unconscious with a baseball bat and locks him in the kitchen pantry. But she and Danny are both trapped as Jack has disabled the hotel's two-way radio and snowcat. Jack converses through the pantry door with Grady, who unlocks the door, freeing Jack. Danny continues chanting and drawing the word red rum. When Wendy or when Wendy sees the word reversed in the bedroom mirror, the word is revealed to be murder. Murder, you say? Jack hacks through the quarter's main door with an axe. In Savannah. <laughs> in Savannah. <laughs> Wendy sends Danny through the bathroom window, but cannot get out herself. Jack breaks through the door, but retreats after Wendy slashes his hand with a knife. Oh, and slashes his hand with a knife. There's no way in there. Hearing Holleran arriving in a snowcat, Jack ambushes and murders him in the lobby, then pursues Danny in the hedge maze. Wendy runs through the hotel looking for Danny, encountering ghosts, a cascade of blood, Danny envisioned in Boulder, and Holleran's corpse. In the hedge maze, Danny lays a false trail to mislead Jack and hides behind a snowdrift while Jack follows the false trail. Danny escapes from the maze and reunites with Wendy. They leave in Holleran's snowcat while Jack, now hopelessly lost in the maze, freezes to death. 
In a photograph in the hotel hallway, Jack is pictured standing amid a crowd of a party of party party goers from July 4th, 1921. Real creepy music at the end. And that is The Shining. If you have not seen it, 41 year old movie. But uh, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, Gentlemen, so uh, let's start with Steve. When did you first see The Shining and what did you think? Um, Have your thoughts changed since then? And then finally, did you read the book at all? Uh, I first saw The Shining when I was a kid, um, probably 10 years old, so early 90s. And it I made it all the way through until the Grady twins uh, down the hallway. And then I'm like, I'm out. That's that's too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it scared the hell out of me. Um, I don't know. There's something about that scene that just freaked me out. And I just couldn't go on past that, that at that age anyway. And it's not until I was in college in the uh, late 90s that I picked it up again. Uh, I was going to film school. So it was one of the films we had to watch for class. And that's when I fell in love with it and really kind of understood what this movie is all about. Uh, and I, I loved it like immediately. So I'd say my first watch, no, but my actual first watch, I, I adored this film because there's so much uh, nuance and there's so much to discuss and to break down and the, the score. And there's so many things about the movie that I love. I'm sure we're going to get through throughout this podcast. Um, so and my thoughts, you know, they haven't changed really that much over the years. I've probably seen it, you know, 20 times uh, in the last you know, 20, 30 years. But uh, if anything, I like it more every time because I see these little details that I just didn't notice the time before. And there's so much in this movie that there is, and it's awesome. And yes, I read the book, but 20 years ago, uh, it was shortly after I graduated from college. So I don't remember it super well, but I remember well enough that I remember some of the big changes that they made for this movie. So I'll be able to discuss that as we go along. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a good book. It's a, Typical Stephen King book. If you've read Stephen King, you kind of know what you get into, like extreme detail, um, kind of a lot of information sometimes, maybe too much information. And it's quite different from the this movie, which is interesting. So, yeah. Stephen King's a weirdo, man. Well, yeah. I don't know. He's he's just a weird guy. I like he's his angry. books, but he's yeah. dark. He just, you're right. Like he's so descriptive and he sexualizes things a lot. And it's just, I don't know that guy is. I mean, his his work is cool, but goddamn, he's weird. So, uh, edgy, edgy armor. It's funny because a you? lot of people don't know that <laughs> that Stephen King is that weird. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I was, yeah. I was just gonna, a lot of people don't don't know that because a lot of people haven't read his books. They just watched uh, the adaptations of his books, and they take out mm-hmm. a lot of that sexualization of things and some of the really dark stuff he writes. I mean, they took out the orgy scene in it. They took out. Uh, yeah. some, some of the weird stuff in the, in the shining. It's, it's interesting that there's like two Stephen Kings, the people who know because they've read him and the people that only seen his adaptations and it's two different people. So it's, it's an interesting parallel. Between yeah. The two. I've, I've never read any of the novels. I've read a lot of the short stories, like the books where it's a collection of short stories. I've read some of those. They're good for like on a plane. Um, and they're far less descriptive than, the, the novels but i mean when you have an 800 page book that you're gonna turn into a two and a half hour movie there's gonna be some some cuts <laughs> <laughs> so it makes sense i mean that also explains why he's a fan of the the long format television miniseries too because then you're you're giving yourself five hours instead of you know two two and a half so makes sense but justin when did you first see the shining 
Gosh, uh, I was think I was in second grade. I was friends with my buddy Jesus Patrick. Jesus Christ, he's <laughs> yeah. young. I know, I was pretty young. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't really get it. I watched it, and you know, my dad was really into it. He loved Jack Nicholson, so he picked it out. Anytime my dad was in charge of picking out movies, it was like Highlander or fucking RoboCop, Terminator or Shining or Scarface. I saw. I remember one time my mom <laughs> called to check on us because she was out of town. She's like, how's it going? I'm like, great, we're watching Scarface. And I'm like, five. Yeah, it's great. So <laughs> kudos to him for his movie picking choices. But uh, so I watched it when I was a kid and then I watched it again when I was a teenager. And then in college, same as Steve, had to watch it for a class. And then um, I would say at some point in the last 10 years, I watched it. And then I again, this was the most recent time was when I watched it on whatever Monday, I think is when I watched it, which which I watched the same. I watched Dr. Sleep the same day. Nice. Um, so I started it on Friday or Saturday, whatever day. I was like, hey, let's watch this. And then I was like, fuck, I can't watch this right now. I, I wanted to, but I, I I knew that I needed to pay attention because there were so many things that I didn't want to miss. And so I wasn't in the right headspace. <laughs> so then like I the, like the bear? Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> I totally didn't remember that. It's so crazy. I was like, man, did they HBO cut that scene out? And uh, But no, I just I must have zoned out. But uh, it is there. Uh, so yeah, it's I've seen it uh, probably five times or so. When it's all said and done, I've seen it a lot. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, it just keeps getting better and better. And I mean, I I try not to overanalyze it because I feel like I'm going to fall into a trap. But that's the beauty of this film, and we will discuss that. But you know, guys, maybe maybe it's a it feels really topical. But uh, we're in a, we're in a pandemic right now. We've been in quarantine for almost a year now. But one of The Shining's main themes is the focus on the the effect of that isolation can have on us. The Torrance family they're in this giant you know grandiose hotel, and it's just them. Uh, it's just a mom, a dad, and a and a boy. Um, many factors such as a person's past mental health issues or things like substance abuse can most definitely affect how each person can handle their time in isolation. Uh, how do you guys handle isolation? Would being with your family make it better or worse? And what would be the thing that you maybe would miss the most? How about, uh, Justin, we'll start with you. Sure. So I know that in this pandemic world that we're living in right now, isolation was kind of hard for me, uh, just being, on lockdown and I'm a busy body. I like to keep moving. I like to go places, I like to run errands, I like to, to chat with people, you know, human interaction is something that I need to thrive. And it was a struggle bus for like six months. You know, I was going crazy. I'm like just digging holes in the backyard from just <laughs> pacing in circles over and over and over again. And uh, it was really difficult for me. Uh, I know it was probably driving Alex crazy too, because she knows that I'm just, you know, what, what is it? I'm a, what does he say? I'm a peacock. I need to fly or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was really hard for me. Uh, but I know that if I was with my family, then there would be fucking murders, man. There's no way I could handle <laughs> being with them. At least if there was, if it was a big place like the Overlook and we could retire to our own little wing of the hotel, then that would probably work. But I mean, think about any family vacation that you were ever on where you're just like stuck in a car with them for a couple hours and you just want to strangle each other. I can't even imagine, you know, six months in a hotel with them. That would drive me fucking bonkers, man. I would, they would have to remove all the alcohol like they do in the movie. They would have to, that, that fire ax could not exist. <laughs> Otherwise someone would use it. We would just fucking murder each other. It would, it would be bad. It would just be a free for all. I mean, we're all, we love each other, but, 
we just need our space. But at the same time, there's that delicate balance that must exist where I can say, hi, how's it going? And then that'd be the end of it for like two or three hours. And then we can, you know, play cards or something like that. But holy shit, man, I would go batshit crazy if if I had to be with them for any long period of time. Even when I was in college, I'd go home on the weekends or something just to do laundry. And as soon as my la- I would get there like Friday night at midnight, I would wake up on Saturday, maybe eat breakfast. And then I would just bounce and go right back home. Like I just, I hated being around them for like long periods of time, but that was mainly because there was a lot of fighting and I didn't want to be a part of it. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. uh, A bit of the same thing. Uh, Struggled, you know, pretty, pretty badly. I think with uh, isolation at first, Uh, my family isn't where I live, so I can't see them ever. And that's weird because, you know, I, I was so used to seeing them all the time. They're only two hours away, but because they're across the border, I, you know, I, I can't see them really anytime. So that that took a while to get used to. Uh, I work from home now, so I haven't seen any of my coworkers or really anyone for the last year, and that's a weird thing. Uh, and I just started doing things to keep my mind off the fact that I'm kind of alone all the time, except for my wife. I, I have my wife here, but um, uh, so I actually like I moved in the middle of a pandemic just to have something to do. Essentially, it's just. Uh, I knew I'd, ha- I'd move at, some- at someday. You know? um, like we didn't plan on moving this year. We, like we didn't, we just kind of, you know, like a house came up that we were kind of interested in in the neighborhood we wanted. So we looked at it and all of a sudden I'm packing stuff and I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'm moving. So I don't know. It's just like, but it, it's, it's, a, it, I don't know. It's just weird. It's just, you find stuff to keep yourself occupied as big or small, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been tough, but, Doing podcasting, playing video games with people is a lot easier. I think this would have been a lot harder 10, 15 years ago when we didn't have easy access, stuff like that, uh, Zoom and all that stuff. So at least we got that kind of stuff. And that's been helping a lot with the isolation. Um, As for my family, same thing. Uh, They're the thing I would miss the most. But it's also if I was with them all the time, I would just like it would drive me crazy. They're just uh, Lovely bunch of people, but damn, uh, being, (laughs) you know, months and months with them stuck in a hotel with just, no, (laughs) wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, I think the only person I can tolerate that long is my wife, right? So, um, yeah, so that's definitely what I would say about isolation. It's it's definitely a tough thing. Uh, You know, I think of my, so my grandfather went into a home uh, right when the COVID first hit and then he got COVID. He was one of the first people in Canada to get COVID. And no one could go see him. And it's stuff like that that I found, you know, I can only imagine people going through these things alone. And it was just so weird. And we couldn't see him. It was just like, and I think about him all the time. He's alone all the time. My grandmother passed a few years ago. So it's just, that's the people I really feel bad. And that's how I kind of keep going, thinking to myself, I have my wife here. I got, you know, friends I can call up anytime. So it's tough for people. And damn, this COVID. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> some people learned how to bake some people learned how to buy a new house so <laughs> yeah i learned how to eat a lot <laughs> i learned how to drink so. <laughs> and work out i guess kind of counterbalance but whatever um so now this movie the shining it's very very dear to both steve and i uh, we both hold it in very high regard as a near horror masterpiece and i just say near horror because i think it is a near horror masterpiece um i don't think it is perfect in every sense but it's goddamn close uh i personally watch it every october to feel that fright i get every time i watch it my question is how do you guys perceive this film 
was this movie scary? Was it terrifying? Was it creepy? Um, why am I right or why am I wrong? Why do I, why is it frightful? Uh, I think there's a lot of scary imagery in this. Um, you know, it scared me when I was a kid. Uh, the, the the Grady girls, I should say, not the twins, which is they're often known as, but they're actually not twins in the in the movie. Um, they're just it's just freaky to see them, you know, in their creepy voice and the score that plays uh, on top of it. And I think a lot of it is Kubrick's ma- manipulation of the of the audience, whether it's with the score or with the sound design. Uh, he'll make sounds like really loud, like specific sounds. The typewriter when uh, Jack is hitting it, the keys, uh, the tricycle when Danny's just going through the Overlook Hotel, and he really knows how to manipulate the audience. So I think it, you're always like on edge. So I wouldn't say now I'm scared. But even after having seen it 20 times, I'm always on edge when I'm watching The Shining. And that's a lot, I think, of Kubrick's genius. And uh, that's how I perceive the film more than scary. I think it's more of a like a tension that just builds and builds and builds until Jack loses it and then starts going after Wendy and Danny. So that's how I would perceive this more so than scary. It's just tense as hell. Yeah. Now, Justin, uh, Justin finds it kind of boring. I don't want to put I don't want to put words in his mouth, but uh, he has told me and I quote <laughs> more like the snoring because he fell asleep during it. So, uh, Justin, what do, what do you think? How do you perceive this film? Did I say it more like the snoring? I think so. Yeah. You always say funny things. Funny. You're always like, I'm funny man. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I could have come up with something better than snoring. I think but, pretty sure uh, you did. I'm going to find it. The, the snoozing. You said it was okay. the snoozing. Am I right? Am <laughs> <laughs> I right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I I have never been scared of this movie. I've been uncomfortable and I think it's unsettling, but that has so much to do with uh, what Steve was talking about. Just the 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 music. Uh, I think just the, the use of the wide angle lens, which is my favorite. I know I use wide angle all the time in every student project that I fucking ever did in college where, <laughs> where uh, it just makes things look so much larger than they are. So oh, yeah. for the sake of the overlook, you even if it's just looking at the little boy, if it's looking at Danny or Wendy or Jack, uh, they're in a room that looks like it's way too goddamn big. And uh, even there's a lot of close-ups and wide angle does some funny things to human beings when it's when they're close to the camera. They just look weird, which might explain you might think that, oh, they're just like 80s hot or something. And that's why they look weird. But uh, Shining's unique because the talent isn't uh, the traditional beautiful cast that you would normally see, especially like in horror films. There's always sort of like the the beautiful teenagers or whatever, you know. Well, they're not technically teenagers, but they're pretending to be teenagers. But usually the cast in a horror film uh, tend to be uh, lookers, whether they are, uh, you know, male or female or whatever, men or women. And they, they, they usually look beautiful. And in this movie, not so much. Everyone's kind of gross looking and <laughs> it's kind of off putting. You're like, why am I looking at these people? But um, that has nothing to do with what they look like in real life. It's the camera that's making them look distorted and strange and that's just a tribute to the wide angle lens and um it is just strange to see gross people versus beautiful people in a movie especially when you think of hollywood right but um totally the sounds i think are very unsettling that the big wheel when he's on the carpet it's quiet when he gets on the hardwood floor it's that rolling wheel sound it's pretty obnoxious but it's cool at the same time um there's just kind of a lot going on and so 
it's 100% more unsettling. And, and we were talking about isolation and just the title cards, you know, it's t- trying to give you this concept of time where you're like, Oh, okay, great. It's fucking Monday. That doesn't mean a goddamn thing to me right now. Cause I don't know if it's a month in or two months in or, or whatever. And that's exactly what it feels like now in this pandemic world that we live in. I wake up and I'm like, shit, man, I don't even know what day it is. I just, I try to have a routine, but I don't fuck if I know if it's Monday or Tuesday, I got to look at my phone every goddamn day to see what day it is because I am just lost. I need like a little far side calendar or, or something. Dilbert. To just, yeah. <laughs> to remind me what the fuck day it is because I honestly, I have no clue anymore. And, and, you know, working in retail for so long, it you kind of forget what day it is too you just know you know i'm off on wednesdays no matter what right (laughs) it's like okay it must be wednesday because i'm gonna work today so i could definitely maybe in years past i would never i was never really able to relate to the concept of time in this movie but now more so than ever because of just having to be on lockdown i totally get it it's like yeah you're telling me it's monday but that doesn't mean a goddamn thing to me eventually it's like yeah it's four o'clock and you're like, oh, okay, maybe think about eating something. Get the, get the early bird special. I'm fucking 80 years old. I could go ahead and, and eat my dinner now. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But I think that that's one of the things that makes it so as un, so unsettling is that everything that's happening on screen, it's almost impossible to relate to. So it's just this constant uncomfortable feeling through the entire movie. No, I don't think it was scary, but I do think it was uncomfortable and unsettling. Absolutely. And I think I like what you said there about the title cards, because I watched a really good video breakdown about um, the the title cards. They they they're ancillary, but they don't seem like it. So uh, it starts, you know, like the interview. Right. And then it says uh, like the first day or whatever. I can't remember what it is. And then it'll say a month later. So they they start from one point in time and then they're widened. So like a month and then they start getting smaller to like Tuesday, Wednesday and then 8 a.m. 4 p.m. Like, so it's this impending doom almost. You're like, whoa, holy shit. All of this is uh, falling to this one moment. It's kind of like what Paranormal Activity did where they they had like weeks in between the videos and then it finally started going day by day to hour to hour. And then you're like, holy shit, something's gonna happen. So I thought that that was really nice as a lead up. But I agree with you guys. I think I wasn't, I'm never scared watching this movie. I am just so unsettled and it's it's just so creepy uh, everything about like what Steve was saying, where, you know, when you walk down, well, I don't walk down any dark alleys, but you know, when you're walking in your house at night and you hear something kind of creak and you're by yourself, uh, I don't know about you, but when I turn around, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm anticipating something to like pop out. And so I got my fist ready. You want to see me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't even know what that means, but, um, so I'm, I'm anticipating <laughs> something, <mean> right? <laughs> I'm anticipating something. And that's what this movie does to me. Every time I watch it, even though I've seen it so many times, I'm just like, whew, and it's compounded with the score, the brilliant use of camera work. So Garrett Brown, who actually invented the Steadicam, he worked on this film too. And the Steadicam plays such an important uh, role in this film as like a character, right? As this omnipresent spirit following Danny on the on the big wheel going through with that really creepy, you know, soft carpet hardwood, soft carpet hardwood. It just adds to the um to the gravity of of the situation that they're all in that that they don't know but as a viewer, we're omnipresent and we we know something's going on here. And I mean, the way that Kubrick uses the camera is is, is brilliant. It's pure brilliance. Uh, his his sharp zooms um, the way he pans over during the act scene when when Jack is 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 uh, chopping down the door, 
normally that would be shot with just like a wide angle, right? Stationary camera. But the fact that it's panning with, we as a viewer watching that camera, like that camera's with us. That camera is an entity. It's uh, it's it's terrifying in, in a certain sense. But you're right. I mean, it's just right. one of those Every weird, time he swings the axe, the camera sways with it right that's what you're saying like when he's yeah. swinging, like the camera does this whole left to right yep. thing yeah yeah you're right it's so cool and that. i mean he like, does zoom a lot i well he, oh, he go ahead. one of the most one of the most important zooms is when danny's playing darts in the game room it's early on in the film he's playing darts and he goes up and he pulls the darts and it's kind of this wide shot i would say and then it zooms in really quick on his face and it holds there for a second and you're kind of like wait what's gonna happen that's the first time he sees the grady twins and while it's not necessarily jarring because there's not a jump scare, it's puts you at unease because they linger a little too long on Danny and you're like, what the fuck is going on? And the score that's playing is the ding, 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 like that kind of stuff. You're just you know, something is creepy and, and something is malevolent in this in this place. Um, but I think that's uh, brilliant about it is the ambiguity. And uh, yeah, it's 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 just phenomenal. And I pick up something new every time I watch it. So I. I think in that sense, it's super, super creepy, but I get what you're saying, Justin. I don't think it's the um, it's the snoozing, but <laughs> I definitely can see why it's not like a, a horribly <laughs> scary <all> right. film. <laughs> yeah, I'm all right. Um, so, yeah. So let's talk about Stephen King really quick. So he's, uh, he's one of the most important authors in the past 40 years, I would say at least. Uh, 50 years, maybe. But uh, the guy can, he can put his name on can pretty you much name, anything. Can you name five authors? <laughs> Cormac McCarthy, Roald Dahl, <laughs> J.K. Rowling, uh, Michael Crichton, um, H.G. Bissinger. I don't know. Who else? Whoever wrote the Bible? Sure. <laughs> Stephen King. Uh, so, so yeah. <laughs> about, about Stephen King, right? So he can put his name on anything and it'll sell like hotcakes, I tell you. Uh, many of his books, they're destined to become TV shows or films naturally just because it's it's good source material. Do you guys enjoy the adaptations? I know Steve was talking about uh, the four-hour miniseries that was closely followed to this book. But do you guys enjoy those adaptations? Uh, do you need them Do you need them to keep uh, the source material? Or are you okay with the director kind of taking liberties? Uh, me personally, I'm, a, I'm okay with deviating from the source material. If if everyone's read the book and they know what's going to happen, you might as well fucking shake it up a little bit. Shake it like a oh, baby. The book and, was uh, better. Oh, the book make, was so much better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just but it didn't cut out this part <laughs> with the orgy. And and so, no, I'm I'm okay with it. I like I like so I like being surprised. Like, uh, what was the, the Dan Brown stuff? The Angels Code, and Demons right? and Da Vinci Code. It's like a whodunit. Yeah. So if you like, if you know who done it, why are you gonna watch the movie? <laughs> so I'm just like, I don't know. It's kind of a waste of of ten dollars if you ask me. So I'm more of the opinion of deviating, uh, maybe coming up with something a little bit different, have some surprises, maybe pleasant or otherwise. Um, and you know, like uh, like Watchmen. I I am a fan of the Watchmen movie, and I I enjoy the shit out of it. And I would argue to my death, I am prepared to die on this hill above the Overlook Hotel that says that the ending in the movie is way better than the graphic novel for the Watchmen. And I'm okay with that. When I saw it, I was like, holy shit, I like this. This makes this makes way more fucking sense. So me personally, I am okay with deviating from the source material. It's not always uh, the right thing to do, but sometimes it's a little bit better. Even like Remix, um, uh, one of the questions that I submitted to the Horror Squad podcast was when they were 
when they watched the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, reboot. And it played this interesting angle of maybe Freddy Krueger was innocent and the kids were just lying little fucks and that they, he didn't, he wasn't a molesting son of a bitch. And it was, it made me think for a second. I was like, holy shit, dude, what if this guy's innocent and he's killing all these people as like revenge? But no, I mean, it, <laughs> He wasn't. <laughs> he was bad, but I mean, I was thinking like, holy shit, dude, this is a fun twist. Who would have thought? That is nuts. And so uh, that won me over. I was like, all right, whatever. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna revisit a classic, yeah, I think you have to do something a little bit different to shake things up a bit. Otherwise, it's just derivative, and who really cares? Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. For for yeah, for a Nightmare on Elm Street. I really wish they had gone the route where he was innocent and that's why he was killing people. I thought it would have been so much more interesting, but they dropped the ball now. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's hard to catch a ball with that glove with all it the is. Yeah. On it. <laughs> yeah. It's always popping it. <laughs> right. Um, as for Stephen King adaptations, uh, I am 100% okay with them deviating from uh, King's novels. I think Stephen King has great ideas. He doesn't always follow through with them really well. Uh, I mean, he even makes fun of this himself. His his endings aren't that great. Um, I think it's in it chapter two where he he makes fun of his endings uh, in a cameo there. And there's just, but for some reason the student can adaptations are awesome. You know, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile. Um, there's just so many awesome Stephen King adaptations. And some of them are really far from the books. They're almost unrecognizable. I mean, The Running Man isn't close to what we got. Uh, as far as the movie, I love the movie, but you know the, the uh, short story is nothing like that. Um, and The Shining takes a lot of things out of the King novel, which this is why he's so pissed off about it. But I think a lot of it's for the better. Uh, you know, uh, we talked about at the top of the show. He uses a polo mallet as opposed to an axe. Um, there's no uh, hedge maze in the novel. It's hedge animals that come to life. Um, you know, there's there's this whole scene in the novel where a garden hose attacks Danny and they show it in the miniseries and it's ridiculous. It's, it just <laughs> oh, takes God. you out completely out of the damn uh, project. And it's, so I do think having these, uh, you know, visionaries like Kubrick to take kind of Stephen King's idea and really run with it. Uh, it's awesome. So I, I always for people taking uh, their own take on his novel. So definitely a yes for me. I have Are you raising your hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to interrupt. I feel terrible when I do. Um, have either of you ever been in a hedge maze before? I did a corn maze once in Washington, and it was pretty nuts. And then they even spruced up in Halloween with like fucking zombies coming at you and stuff. And that just sounds horrifying. So I'm just curious if either of you have ever done a hedge maze. Uh, I've never done a hedge maze, but I've done a corn maze also because I live in Washington. Uh, they're okay. Uh, they're, I usually find the exit pretty quick. I'm like, oh, there it is. But, you know, the one that they have in this movie is massive. So I would probably get really anxious uh, getting lost. So I'd probably walk straight through all the, the shrubbery and just out if I could make my own path. <laughs> yeah, and the same thing with me. Uh, I, I've never been in a hedge maze. I have been in a corn maze. But I've also been in a, there's this big maze thing in the hometown where I grew up in that it was like four different parts and you had to get a stamp at each of the four mazes and then go into a castle to find the final stamp before you can like exit the the thing. And that was really cool. It, it was, and it was fun to go through a maze and kind of get lost, but you know, it's a controlled environment. I don't know if I'd go in a hedge maze, not knowing where I'm going, you know, there's no uh, monitor right. with his little <laughs> uh, dinky whistle there. <laughs> if you get lost or something like that, 
So yeah, uh... use your wand and send up a flare. Right (laughs) there, you go. Make sure it's make sure make sure it's off the charger though first. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so this you know <laughs> you remember that that was funny. I'm I remember that was funny. I'm like an elephant. I'll never forget. So like you, this uh, this you film can see him on Animal Kingdom. It's airing in Canada right now. That's right. I finished. I finished. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, so this film it's notorious for all the behind the scenes drama with uh, Justin was talking about it early too with Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson and the the hundred plus takes that kubrick would do i mean the movie was shot at this really famous sound studio in london and i forgot what it's called and it was scheduled to, to take 15 weeks it took 51 weeks at that sound studio uh raiders of the lost ark actually got pushed back because of that because it was filming and it took up so much time so i mean it, it's uh it's pretty crazy but you know the maniacal direction that kubrick takes during production uh some think it's necessary he tested all of his actors and crew uh, he would constantly rewrite the script. He demanded multiple takes. He required a grueling shooting schedule, just to name a few. Through all of these barriers, though, we're given one of the most iconic films in modern history. Have you ever worked with uh, worked with, or for someone on a project that did not go expected? How did it turn out for you or your team? Um, would you have done things differently? And how do you respond to these types of uh, antics? Ooh. Um, so no, I've never worked with anybody crazy like that. I mean, I, I, th- I feel like I've had some interesting managers over the course of my adult life where I've had to find fun and creative ways to connect with them to where we were on the same page. But I never really had like a horrifying experience where I was just sick to my stomach every day and I didn't want to go to work because I was tired of this person. But I do know that I've ha- I felt uneasy before. You know, when we worked at Target inventory was always an interesting time and it was even more interesting when you would go to another store to help out because then you would see how they do things and then maybe their boss's boss's boss is in the building and it just makes everyone uncomfortable and it's irritating and uh, i i most i think with like i don't know if it was at i think it was at uh bellevue and um our the apbp was there and he is uh, an interesting fella and he complicated things <laughs> and then his boss was there so, so he was acting even more dickish because she was there and it wasn't even my store but i just felt uncomfortable the entire time i was there i was going to work with her with a good friend it was gonna be great and then i was just like in a corner crying the whole time because i hated every second i was there but um and i know zach you know who i'm talking about but yeah, i'm not I gonna know. name any names but i remember what could have been a fun all-night experience ended up just being a bit of a nightmare but uh is over and done with so it wasn't the end of the world and i knew it was eventually going to be fine but um i just remember it being uh way harder than it needed to be so that's pretty much it for me but as far as like kubrick goes i mean it's his job to bring out the best what he feels is the best in in the talent that's there and uh i mean 40 years later we're still talking about this movie and how amazing it is so obviously he did a good job there are times when i laugh like when when jack's chopping down the door and shelly duvall's like having a what looks to be like a nervous breakdown in real life it looks like she is just mortified of the situation that she is in and i'm laughing i can't help but laugh and i I feel terrible (laughs) about that but I can't explain it. And Alex is even when she comes in as that scene's happening. I'm just like cracking up. She's like, are you laughing right now? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> just 
because it's so like over the top. And I get it. I mean, I would be delirious too. And and she's at her wits end. So she's doing everything that she needs to do. She's doing a great job. It's just me being an immature idiot. Sometimes I just, I have to laugh. I can't, you know, you know how I am, right? I watch a scary movie. Yeah. I laugh when I'm uncomfortable. That's just how I do. And so here she comes in when this horrible scene is happening. And I'm just fucking laughing my ass off because I don't know how to, I don't know how to control my body. Yeah, um, I also worked with some people who were very difficult to work with. Uh, my previous job, I was a senior analyst for a really big corporation and would work on you know millions of dollars worth of deals. And when you put that kind of money, uh, people just go crazy. Um, it just becomes personal to everyone who works there and everyone who works on everything because there's such a huge impact if you don't get a deal or if you do get a deal. And that made some really uncomfortable situations uh, really often. And I think uh, movies are that in a lot of ways. There's a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of people who are pushing you know, from the top to make sure that whatever project you're delivering makes you know, their forecast or their, the, the, mon- the money they need. Now, I don't know if that was necessarily Kubrick. I, Kubrick seems to me just like it was more his artistic you know, interpretation, uh, which made him so friggin' you know, unique as a filmmaker. Um, but I think the way to handle it is just to stay in your lane, concentrate on what you have to do and try to stay, you know, keep your head on and try to leave work at work. That's a problem I used to have big time is I'd bring my work home with me and it just put me in a wrong headspace. And it's not until I left that job two years ago that I realized like, damn, I was killing myself for nothing. Like these people don't care about me. It's, it was all about money. It was not about the people at all. Um, and yeah, and as for Kubrick, you know, doing it, I, I feel bad. You know, it's just, it's a tough way. Like, he really tortured the actors on his projects. Uh, you guys covered The Exorcist a while ago, and Friedkin was kind of the same way. I mean, he slapped one of the priests to get a better reaction out of him. Um, it's just, you know, there, there's like Jesus. this old way of people making these movies. And in The Exorcist, same thing. He loosened the... Um, when Reagan is going up and down on the bed, he loosened the plate that was make, doing that so that her back would smack against the metal plate, which made her scream even more. Oh, my God. And he's just, like, these are terrible things when you hear about it. And I'm glad they don't happen as much <laughs> nowadays. But unfortunately, it did bring out, you know, the, in, the intended effect. And, and we see that in this movie. Uh, Shelley Duvall, especially, like you said, you could see the fear in her eyes, you could see that she's tired and just emotionally drained. And it really works for the film. But at the same time, you can't help but feel that. And I get, you know, I, I laugh at it too, because it's uncomfortable and it's just our way of dealing with things. But uh, I'm glad it doesn't happen as much anymore. And people get called out on that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's, it's tough to watch, but that's, what I would say just stay in your lane and try to keep a smile and just push through and don't, don't take, don't let people take advantage of you is what I, I think you should do. So, like, we did the movie Whiplash a couple weeks ago, right? And um, fucking J.K. Simmons, you know, he's he's a horrible man in that movie. And he is trying really hard to bring out the best in his, uh, you know, in his band. And, you know, he starts slapping Miles Teller around and telling him he sucks and blah, blah, blah. But then it was all that crazy... Uh, attitude and encouragement we'll, we'll call it that for lack of a better word that that brought out the best in his character andrew and 
I, I can just see Kubrick being, you know, J.K. Simmons in that position where he's just like slapping him like, fuck you, man. You can do better than that. Fuck you. You can do better than that. Let's do it again. Again, again. Like Herb and fucking uh, Miracle where he's just like, again, yeah. again. <laughs> and so I, I, I've never been in that situation. But again, 40 years later, this is like the most overanalyzed movie on the planet. And everyone's talking about it. And Kubrick's a genius <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they are they are sucking at the Kubrick teat, as it were, and uh, he didn't get that way, you know, on accident. Yeah, I mean, the man was a genius. He was 200 IQ, it's more IQs than I got. I'm only like 55. I don't know, but he, you know, he, he definitely, <laughs> only he definitely five measly little points. <laughs> he he definitely demanded a lot from his actors, and Jack Nicholson is is a fantastic actor. He's one of the greatest of all time, but. He had that maniacal level, or not maniacal level, but he had that that craziness to him where I think Kubrick already kind of knew, like, I don't really need to do anything for him because this guy is, is batshit crazy. So his daughter made a documentary, uh, like, behind the scenes filming of The Shining, and that's when we really get to see him talk to Shelley Duvall, Kubrick talk to Shelley Duvall, and he's really condescending. He talks down to her. And it's it's uncomfortable to watch because she's like, look, my hair is coming out. And he's like, your hair. And he holds it up to the camera. And it's like, you know, a little bit of hair. But it, it, it is. And he's kind of giving her a hard time. He's like, Shelly, I'm telling you, that's not how we're going to do it. That's, it doesn't sound good. You need to stop uh, jumping every time he says a word. And I can I understand just like the J.K. Simmons conversation. I understand what he's trying to accomplish. But at a certain point, it's like, oh, my God, <sighs> I just, I don't know, man. I mean, he, he has this picture in his mind or he had this picture in his mind that only he could see and everything was perfect and meticulous. And I think that's what he wanted. But I feel so bad for Shelley Duvall because I honestly don't think she's ever been the same because she did a Popeye after this movie. And right. that movie was that movie was pretty bad. So I, I don't know if she's ever really been the, the same because she hasn't done much past the, you know, the 80s. I think like, the, like 1990 was her last role. But it's um it's fascinating. He's uh, he was definitely a, a weird guy, but uh, we spoke on ambiguity um, earlier and how it can affect our views in horror films, in horror films. <laughs> Another intriguing aspect to come uh, from this film are the vast number of conspiracy theories. So most notably displayed in the documentary Room 237. You know, hell, I could uh, I could waste an entire day just uh, going just typing the shining into YouTube and going down this amazing rabbit hole of finding ridiculous conspiracy theory videos. Are you guys aware of any of these conspiracy theories? Uh, and do you agree with any of them? Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff about uh, the shining. So many interpretations and stuff like that. I mean, do I agree with all of them? No. Uh, and there's, I know, I don't remember if it's, I haven't seen Room 237 since probably 2014, uh, but there are conspiracy theories that go outside the movie. Like, uh, this is proof that Kubrick faked the, the moon landing and stuff like that. Uh, it's just like this whole crazy, crazy stuff, but sticking to like the actual things about the movie. Um, I know there's a lot of native American, uh, th theories as to this is on a, you know, ancient, uh, burial ground and Native Americans attacked the um, the hotel as they were building it, and you see a lot of the imagery inside the Overlook Hotel being Native. And at one point, Jack throws a ball at the artwork, almost like the white man's disrespect towards uh, Natives. And there's just a bunch of these little moments that point to this whole being basically a curse, uh, and the Overlook is kind of a hell for the white people who 
you know, did wrong to this native uh, community. So I, I liked that aspect. Uh, I don't remember if they covered it in the documentary. They probably did, but it's one of the many theories going out there. Uh, there's this whole other one where it's kind of like um, Theseus and the Minotaur. Uh, that's why you have the hedge maze and uh, the Minotaur being a creature that's born of a beast and a man, which explains the bear fellatio scene because it's a bear with a man. And there's just a lot of these cool little things <laughs> that <laughs> you ever heard that one? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's, there's, there's these wild theories I, out I've there. I've heard Theseus, but my God. <laughs> New new information for me. Holy shit! Right, yeah, and, and that's what that's the brilliance of this movie. There's so many angles you can go with what this movie is about. Um, there's also this whole purgatory, you know, thing that they talk about. Uh, one thing that Kubrick does in the movie that would seem like a mistake to everyone else, but you, the Overlook Hotel doesn't seem to have a set um, like map. Like the rooms seem to be out of order, uh, play, in places that they're not supposed to be. Uh, one big example of that is when Wendy, uh, Dick, and Andy go into the, um, Danny, sorry, go into the freezer. They come out in one door, and when they're coming back out, it's a whole other <laughs> door. So if you look at the background, they're two different backgrounds. So it's like the rooms don't make sense. And he purposely uh, did continuity errors. Like in some scenes, some stuff is going to disappear from the background and watch shot and come back in the next and then something else is missing. And then it's just like these weird little things that he put in that just point to this whole being a, a purgatory of sorts. And yeah, there's a lot of great theories and that's what makes this movie so discussable. I love it. So the continuity thing is so interesting because like, you know, we would chalk it up from any other filmmaker being like, Oh, that was just a continuity error. Like the set deck, they, you know, they, they couldn't figure out whatever a set designer couldn't figure out this with Kubrick and it just, went past editing but for a person like stanley kubrick who is so goddamn meticulous that's why this movie's overanalyzed is because people are like wait, wait, wait why is that picture hanging crooked and now it's straight it's like you know that that doesn't make that's why we overanalyze these things and you're exactly right and another one to piggyback off of your uh the placement of the rooms how they don't make any sense so in that documentary room 237 they mapped it out for what they basically imagine the the hotel being and Stan Ullman's office, the hotel manager, it's really weird because it has a window in the back of it, but it's inside right next to reception, which doesn't have a window and there's like no way it could have. So they were thinking that went along the lines of the purgatory or or the fact that maybe like Jack is the caretaker the entire time and he's never he's never left the Overlook Hotel. Like you see him in the car driving up, uh, but you never see him outside of that vicinity like he's never shown in boulder or anything like that so i agree with you i I like the purgatory one a lot um and and the same with the native american one like when he's in the in the dry storage room there's that focus on the baking powder that has the native american symbolism on it too it's all over there um there's tang drink like tang was a there was something about it but i can't remember but it's just it's 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 batshit crazy they're really fun to read um but i do take them with a grain of salt so justin do you know any of the theories so i think the tang was a reference to the moon landing because astronauts ate oh there you go yes yeah there you go that was thrown in there like to add fuel to the fire to the faking (laughs) of the apollo moon landing but i always interpreted the the room's not making sense and the door's not making sense and the continuity area era um, excuse, excuse me the continuity errors to be uh, sort of disorienting for us because even um, 
Shelly Duvall's character, Wendy, she is like, gosh, this place is so big. It's like a maze. You know, I'll never find my way around here. Um, I always interpreted that as even we are lost, even though at the when we're watching the movie, there's the room that Jack's in where he's writing, which kind of is like this huge entrance area. And it's got the staircase that goes up. And then there's the reception area. There's the kitchen. There's their suite where they're staying. But I mean, it's so huge and we don't see a lot of it. I mean, the only time we ever really get like a perimeter check is when Danny is cruising around on his little big wheel, picking up checks uh, two at a time. And so um, I just took that as like it being disorienting. And I thought I saw one of the videos showing that the heads maze was actually uh, trying to sort of map out the hotel in the maze itself to where, it was sort of following along with all the different rooms, uh, which made that kind of interesting. I don't know how you would know that, um, especially when like the shot of, of them, of Danny and Wendy walking in the mazes at the center. And then it's a model for the rest of it. You know, they just kind of had that one little piece where he's looking down at them. But um, the, for the, for the sake of, you mentioned the, the burial ground and where the ground is sour. Right. And uh, the, I was on the impression that the blood that's pouring out from the elevators was just all the blood spilt over the years during those battles, as opposed to this is the blood from killing the the family, you know, like um, the Grady family murders. I can't imagine that there would be that much blood, but the first time I saw it, I thought that it was their blood. But as I got older, I was like, well, maybe this is just from all the blood spilt over the years kind of thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. That's exactly how I interpret it, especially knowing that theory. Um, and there's something else that, uh, there's and I forget the name of it. I'm sorry. There's this Native American massacre in real life that happened in 1909, which is when the Overlook was built. And then they they put up uh, some kind of like statue to commemorate that um, that massacre and just kind of pay respects and everything. And that statue was stuck by lightning on uh, July 4th, 1921, which is the date that we see at the oh, end shit. of. Uh, the movie. So I think Kubrick definitely had some of these things in mind when he uh, made the movie. And uh, Justin, I agree with you. I think the blood uh, coming down from the elevator, because that's way too much blood just for the essentially the Grady girls and his wife, you know, right. uh, I think it is the blood yeah. spilt. I got like that... nine pints. <laughs> exactly. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of great theories out there and that's what makes this movie so fascinating. I think the the fun thing about that documentary is, I mean, those guys are just are, are goofballs in that. Um, it's it's pretty remarkable the amount of uh, overanalyzing that people can do. But that documentary is not necessarily about the conspiracy theories. It's about fandom. And it's about how we, especially with the invention of the internet, things like Reddit and 4chan and stuff, how we can overanalyze it until the cows come home, basically. And uh, the moon landing one is so awesome to look at because you know like the apollo 11 stuff how the carpet's laid out it looks like a launch pad and then they're like you know when the ball comes to danny he he rises up like he's launching and i'm just like oh my god it's one giant eye roll through it i mean there's even a a moment when some conspiracy theorist is like if you look in the clouds at the beginning kubrick put his beard in the cloud so he put his image of himself there and i'm just like oh my fucking god (laughs) so um but i do and and danny has the sweater too this is apollo 11 yeah Um, that's what yeah because he's wearing this like Apollo usa or some shit yeah it says apollo 11 yeah yeah, as he rises up and i'm just like oh god here we go so it's uh it's ridiculous but the native american one i think is is probably the most accurate um 
I think that's the beauty of, of, of Kubrick, though, is he's he was so smart and he definitely had a purpose for this. But just like David Lynch or Jordan Peele or Christopher Nolan, he's not going to tell us his his uh, his reasoning, really. It's kind of up for us for our own interpretation. And no one's really wrong, per se. Um, I think it's just it's fun to look at for sure. So those uh, those conspiracy theories, they are something. Um, so to kind of to kind of piggyback off of that question, let's discuss the hedge maze. You guys were talking about the hedge maze earlier. Uh, while not necessarily in the book, um, I believe that it was fascinating and an important addition to the film. The maze can be interpreted in so many different ways. What do you think th- uh, the maze in this movie represented? Has the discussion changed your overlook on it? Ha. <laughs> hmm. I'm all right. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, I, for me, I would say that the maze is just uh, an extension of getting lost in not only yourself, but the overlook, like having just this this whole idea of not knowing who you are, where you are, when you are. Uh, and I think that that is a direct extension of the overlook. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. Um, definitely better than the animal hedge <laughs> that uh, they do in the book that attacks Danny at the end which is completely ridiculous. Uh, I like the the whole imagery of the maze in this. I liked when Jack is looking at the maquette of the maze inside the hotel and he sees uh, Danny and Wendy kind of making it to the center of the maze. And there's just such a good imagery of it being you're lost and you don't know where it is and it kind of mimics the Overlook Hotel in a way. And it plays into the whole Theseus and Minotaur thing at the end again. Uh, the way that Danny escapes is by going back on his uh, on his steps and you know fooling Jack into thinking that he's going one way when he really went another, and that's the same thing that Theseus does to fool the Minotaur. So uh, it's just cool imagery and a nice representation of what the Overlook is, I think. And I so I I agree with you guys on that one, but I'll throw this one in there too. I and this is a spoiler for Doctor Sleep, so skip ahead like two minutes if you don't want to hear it. But basically. I think of the hedge maze as as Danny's mind or or maybe Jack's mind. And in Dr. Sleep, Danny traps all of the ghosts in those uh, trunks or those cases. Right. And he locks them away. And, and we see that towards the climax of the film when they have Rose the hat and they bring her into the hedge maze. I think that is a representation of the brain. Uh, the brain has similar patterns where it's all zigzaggy and crazy, uh, but getting lost in your own mind is also a direct reflection of like the overlook. Like Justin was saying, it's it's a giant place that we're unsure of where we are. Um, so all of this can kind of tie into all of your guys' theories too, like about purgatory. So I definitely think that the maze represents um, Jack's mind or Danny's mind. Let's just say Danny's mind for for the sake of this, but definitely a brain of some sort. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then, so did you guys have a favorite moment in the movie? What about a scene that you would prefer to never watch it again? <laughs> again. Uh, so for me, I think my favorite scene is, uh, it's kind of a culmination of a lot. I always like how the characters see something before we do. Uh, it's most specifically my favorite part is when Wendy is creeping up on the pages that Jack has written and we're like, well, what is she looking at? What is she seeing? And then it reveals to us, you know, just whatever. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And it's written in a billion different ways. It uh, looks fantastic. It's a really fun reveal. And <clears throat> excuse me. I just always think it's cool that we 
we see the character's reaction before we get to react. So they have this look of horror or disbelief or whatever. And then we finally get to see it. Like, well, what is it? What is it? You were talking about how Danny is almost uncomfortable that it's on him for too long when he sees the twins. Cause now we're like, well, well, what is it kid? <laughs> you know, what the, <laughs> the fuck? What's the problem? Um, and I, that adds the uneasy and the, un, the unsettling part of it. And I think that, that is probably one of my favorite things about the entire movie is just that one aspect alone of the, the character seeing the horror before we do. Yeah. Um, my favorite scene is uh, when Jack is having a conversation with Lloyd, the bartender. Um, yeah. And then subsequently uh, the conversation he has with Grady in the bathroom as well. Uh, I think it's the, the two scenes that really show the most of like what Jack is all about. And he's just his different, like his way of thinking and how he turns from kind of angry to being happy. And it's just like a great scene of, and Lloyd doesn't even say that much. He just has a couple like one-liners that he spits out once in a while, but a lot of it's Jack kind of interpreting things and figuring things out. And I just, I love seeing Jack, you know, kind of being suave, but then being kind of, standoffish and then going back into being uh, comfortable. And it's just, it's an interesting scene. And I always loved uh, the chemistry between Lloyd and Jack and then uh, Grady and Jack in the bathroom. And I think uh, they're very interesting moments in the film. So Kubrick is so, uh, he's so impactful with his color choices. His color palette is incredible. And if you look at the body of work that he has, he uses a lot of the same colors to represent things. So like, for example, green represents death. So we see in this film very, very prominently when they go to room 237, the green bathroom, it's all green, right? Uh, and that's where he, we find the dead, disgusting old lady. Uh, the bathroom when Grady and them are talking is all bright red. And I believe that that uh, is a celebration of anger, I think. It's like celebration in the sense of they're showing it, but it's not, I can't, I can't really remember what i what i watched what they said but anyways it's very very prominent as a color like i've never seen a bathroom like that uh you know bright red and um that's a really important scene and and just like steve's saying we get we get a lot of jack nicholson's face facial expressions and the variety that he has in his body language and it works so goddamn well because that's when you really shift gears from a something's going on to you must correct them like you know uh he's bringing he's bringing someone an outsider in to come help and you're just kind of like holy shit he's off his rocker at this point so sorry justin go ahead what are you gonna say i was gonna say my least favorite scene is when jack gets just goes off on wendy when she interrupts him and he's like i'm working and it just made me really uncomfortable to where i felt like i was listening to my parents fight and i hated every second of it and if I were to watch it right now, I can tell you I would fast forward to that scene because I hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't like to watch people fight in anything. I don't know, it just makes me I'm super uncomfortable. Um, but going back just quickly to the Lloyd and Grady scene, uh, what I like so much about it too is that it's really Jack having a conversation with the Overlook Hotel. You know, the the characters themselves are not that important. They're really a representation of him going face to face with the hotel itself and the hotel, I think ultimately is the most interesting character in this film. Um, it's like it's it, it, to have a place that's a character is such an interesting concept. And it, it's what really puts out a lot of the different things we'll talk about room two thirty seven you know, a little bit later. And uh, 
I think it's cool to see him kind of have a conversation with the hotel and what the hotel actually wants from him. And I thought it was just such a fascinating scene. Yeah, I agree, man. And uh, like what Justin's saying about the fighting thing. So it's interesting. So this adaptation, Jack Torrance from the beginning. Uh, so Jack Nicholson, he's he's an asshole. And you can just tell. I mean, when they're driving there in the car in the first like 15 minutes, he seems so annoyed with when Danny's like, when are we going to get there, dad? I'm hungry. And he's like, you should eat your breakfast. And, you know, Wendy is, is she's being a nice, loving wife. But Jack just he's an asshole and he seems like a loser. Um, he doesn't seem like he's ever hit it big with a novel. He just he's like, oh, I'm a writer, right? You know, well, what have you written? I don't know stuff like he hasn't done anything. So I, I'm never rooting for him this stuff. entire f- <laughs> stuff. Um, I, I never read clueless reference. I've never, uh, rooting for him. And I guess in the book, it's, it's a little different. Cause I think he's like an every man and, uh, he, he slowly descends into madness. So I think that's what Stephen King was upset with Jack Nicholson for. And I can see that, but I think Nicholson nailed it. Um, he is such an asshole. Like Justin's saying, you distracted me, you know, he's like, now why don't you get the fuck out of here? Like he's such an asshole to her. And, you know, that's I think that just adds to to the element of this, the creepiness of this. So. Um, so did you guys have any moments in this movie you'd like to discuss the meaning of? Uh, I mean, we don't really have to. We kind of just went over some. But for me, I personally, I would like to ask your opinions on the bear costume fellatio scene at the climax of the film. What did it mean to you? Because I've it's it's probably one of the biggest mysteries in this film and it made no sense the the first 15 times i saw this and it only took me the next 15 times to kind of maybe realize what could be happening but i want to know what you guys think steve yeah that it really just comes at you it just no no warning it just there it is there's a a bear with his butt flap down and uh having a little fellatio party with a a guest it's uh, it's an interesting imagery for sure. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I still, after having seen it this many times, have a hard time understanding what it's about. Uh, I think a lot of it is just Kubrick messing with his audience. Um, and, you know, like I ta- talked about before, there is that theory that it's, again, to point to to, to the Minotaur. Uh, but honestly, more than, I just think it's Kubrick messing with his audience. And it's also when Wendy is starting to see everything and it shows just how kind of weird the people who are stuck in the overlook are. And just, I don't know. I'm very interested to hear what you think about it because uh, it's definitely one of the biggest mysteries of this film for sure. Sure. So it's interesting that you mentioned Wendy, uh, like how she, this is the first time she's really seen anything because uh, I was watching this one video and it was showing how, which I didn't even pick up on first, but like when she's in the generator room or the boiler room or whatever it is, uh, there's like nude pictures all over the wall, but like she doesn't even give a shit. She's just minding her own business. Like she's in her own little world or maybe she just doesn't even see that those are there or exist. And so when it is all coming together and she starts to get all scared, like she's finally, uh, you know, peered through the veil and is seeing the, the horror that exists in the Overlook Hotel. And, you know, there's, there's different theories on, uh, you know, maybe maybe a a hotel guest walked in on a sexual encounter, and that was you know her playing the part of the hotel guest that's walking in on this. You know, it's nineteen twenties, and everyone's having a good time. Or it could even be that uh, it symbolizes that Jack sexually abused Danny. Uh, there is that whole idea of when you know he had been hurt before. You know, with the whole pulling his arm out of his socket or grabbing his arm too tight, and and and. Um, 
that we know that he was uh, physical with him to some degree. Uh, you know, that's plain painfully obvious at the beginning. Uh, even when uh, Wendy is telling the doctor that whole story, you know, it's just something that happens, right? She's he's grabbing too tight. But then there's also this whole idea of when he blacks out, when Danny blacks out as a as a back at the the house, and the doctor's checking on him, and um, he's not wearing pants. Uh, there is the the bear that's on the bed, um, and it's just kind of connecting those dots. And to me, that reminded me of like when let's say that it's shark week right and i'm watching great white sharks just jump out of the water breach the surface and catch a seal or something i'm like whoa that's fucking cool right but i just watched a video on sharks and now i'm scared so now i'm gonna play on my phone for a little bit before i go to bed and then i see an advertisement on like converse i'm like whoa these chucks are fucking sweet i gotta get them and then i go to bed and then the first thing i fucking dream about is a shark Jumping out of the water wearing kick-ass Converse because he couldn't do it unless he was wearing these Converse. And so, like, I thought to myself, well, what if she just had some sort of mental image of she remembers her kid and the teddy bear and he wasn't wearing pants. And then that was just some weird, you know, dreamlike interpretation. I know that's happened to you guys, too. I can't be the only guy that's dreamed of sharks wearing fucking Converse. My sharks wear high top Jordans. So only <laughs> they got the pump but, ones. <laughs> yeah, but I, I agree with you, Justin. So that's what that's the theory that I've heard and, and read the most. One really fun thing, and just like Steve saying, where where Kubrick's trying to fuck with us. So it's really interesting. But I had to watch, and I might have watched the same video as you, Justin. But when uh, Stan and Bob, when they come up to Jack after he's he's sitting down i think it's during his interview or maybe like when he's getting ready to move his family in at the overlook he's reading a magazine and it is a playgirl magazine so playgirl is usually naked men which is very interesting and i don't think it would be readily available at a hotel lobby but you know i i, I wasn't alive in the 80s <laughs> like like that i should say that early so i don't know sure uh, also they zoomed in this guy zoomed in there's an article on there on that exact issue about incest which is pretty fucked up. So it's like, y- you know that that was on purpose. Like someone had to have seen that. That wasn't an, an, an error on any part. So it's very, very interesting why that was put in there. And uh, it, it's a very disturbing scene in the sense of we just have no idea what's going on and the butt flap being open. But I, I agree with Justin that it's more alluding to sexual abuse. Um, I think in the book, uh, Dick Holleran explains that he might have been abused as a child and and that's why he can shine uh in doctor sleep they don't really go into that necessarily i think people are just born that way but i was almost thinking that it, the, the shine could have been uh one avenue it's it's developed out of is is through trauma uh, that that's an option but i i don't know if that's necessarily accurate so i mean that that could further strengthen the idea of of the bear simulating or uh symbolizing the abuse yes justin with your hand up in, was it in Doctor Sleep where Holleran explains that his grandfather was an evil man, or was that in The Shining? I can't remember because I watched them both kind of back to back. <laughs> he, I, well, I know that uh, he talks about his grandmother and him. They, she could shine. I don't know about the grandfather being evil. That might have been Doctor Sleep. Um, yeah, I think it was Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Then. yeah, he where he had said he was just the meanest man, and um, you know, the day that he died, he was, you know, kind of happy in a way. <laughs> he shouldn't be happy when someone dies, but. He was, but then, you know, he just came back because there is something after death, which is pretty crazy. So, yeah, it must have been Dr. Sleep. Hmm. Um, actually, that brings me to the two questions I had for you guys. 
And it's the two things about the book that I liked better than the Kubrick version. And I'm curious of your take on it. Uh, number one, uh, Dick Halloran, his character, I feel kind of gets uh, the shaft in, in Kubrick's version. I mean, he, he spends the whole movie essentially making his way back to the overlook. And then he dies the second he gets there uh, pretty unceremoniously. And in the book, he survives uh, actually makes it out of the overlook and then is in Dr. Sleep. And the other part is um, uh, Danny's relationship with uh, Tony, his like his finger, essentially. Uh, they don't really explain much of it in the Kubrick's version. Uh, I don't remember if they talk about it in Dr. Sleep, because I haven't seen it since a the theater, but uh, Tony is him in the future. So he's talking to himself from the future, and that's how he knows all the stuff. Uh, but they don't explain that at all in um, Kubrick's interpretation. But in the novel, that's a big part of it is you find out that he's talking to himself in the future and he's warning himself and stuff like that. So what do you guys take on that as far as Kubrick's interpretation of those two things? Uh, so for me, I, I, I agree. I think Halloran got totally shortchanged and it sucks. Like he's we're literally just watching him get to back to Colorado the whole movie just to get an axe in the chest. That is kind of lame. and. Uh, that always made me sad, but uh, as far as the the Danny's older self talking to him and communicating with him, I don't know if there was a way to make that look good uh, in 1980 technology. But I think I would have appreciated it more as a viewer, especially a first time viewer, because he just seems like a weird kid, and it doesn't make any sense. And you're and you're supposed to buy into it pretty early. You know, his first scene, he's having his little the claw conversation with his mom. And hey, Gipper! <laughs> and so you're like, oh, great. We got a weird kid. Why do I always get stuck with the weird ones, right? And so it's, I think, just from a a viewer standpoint that knew nothing about the, the book or The Shining at all, it would have made more sense if, there, if, if we knew who Tony was. And we kind of get that when we have the conversation with Holleran where He's like, who's Tony? And he's like, well, he's the one that talks to me or whatever. And so uh, just calling Tony, uh, you know, his shining to me, I, I feel like was enough. But at first, I remember even thinking like, dude, I'm eight and I don't even have an imaginary friend, um, you know, when I first saw it. And so and then even as watching it as an adult, I'm always like, fuck, I forgot this kid's a little weirdo. Um, but I mean, I get over it pretty quickly. But I do think that without the scene with Holleran explaining it to him and 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 connecting the dots for us to know that tony is his shining uh that was much needed because that's all we get you could i mean you could argue too that while i don't really like dick holleran's death uh there are some good things to come from it he essentially saves them because he brings a snowcat up for them and then they are able to escape and said snowcat uh he is able to his arrival distracts Jack from getting in. Cause I mean, Jack was, he was ready to kill Wendy. He was right there at the door. Uh, so that was, that was impeccable timing. The other thing about it. Uh, and I've talked about this too. I don't like jump scares. Um, I don't like when they're poorly used. This jump scare is excellent. Um, because of the tension that was built throughout the entire movie, you're not expecting a jump scare. So when he's like, hello, who's there? You're just thinking it's going to be a long tracking shot or a long POV shot. Uh, from behind and then all of a sudden you hear ah, and it's just a super quick cut to to an axe in his chest and, and that jarring sound and then it, it jumps to Danny just you know 
mouth agape and just screaming and holy shit that's a that was one one of the scenes that really ingrained itself in my mind and I'll I'll never forget but I do think he did get a, sh- a sh- the short end of the stick on that one but um I mean I don't know he could have saved him I mean, he essentially saved him so and then I agree with Justin the the Tony thing I'm okay without them explaining that because that would have taken me out of the story. Um, I think if you remain at the overlook as much as possible, keep it contained that that will help the story. I mean, yeah, they showed Dick in, in Miami and they showed the family in Boulder and then they showed uh, the Tony Burton um, from Rocky. <laughs> they showed him at the garage when, yeah. he, when Dick, when Dick called yeah. him. But I mean, that was necessary to progress the plot. If, if they showed Tony like on some, I don't know, as some sort of like ancestral being in the future, you just be like, what? it would just be very odd to me. I think that that would take it away. So, yeah. That, and I think the TV version looked pretty chintzy. <laughs> like he's just like <laughs> kind of like in Carolot floating on a cloud, like, Hey kid, what's happening? It's going to get really bad before it gets uh, better. You're going to need some lame. ointment there. You're going to need some ointment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna need some excitement on that uh, hollering thing. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It, it was it just would have been too hard to do. But I'm glad I got the explanation from Hollerin about uh, what the shining is. Otherwise, that would have fucking been off my rocker. I would have not. It would have never made any sense to me. <laughs> so, are you guys Kubrick fans? Uh, if so, what films in particular? And then, um, what what films do you strongly dislike? Sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I like Kubrick's films. I like uh, directors who put a lot of attention to detail that leads to conversations like the ones we're having right now. Um, you know, it, it reminds me like right now in modern time, uh, Ari Oster's films, where he puts such a insane amount of details in his film that you can watch him over and over again and see totally new things. And that's something that I really respect uh, about Kubrick. Uh, my favorite ones of his are 2001 Space Odyssey and as tough as it is to watch, uh, A Clockwork Orange. I, I just really liked the structure of A Clockwork Orange. Now, the the rape scene is very difficult to watch, especially today, um, but there's a great movie in there. And those are my two of his favorite films. The one I don't like is Eyes Wide Shut, uh, his last film. It just... It just really didn't didn't connect with me <laughs> nah, anyway. Nah, nah, <laughs> nah, yeah. Nah. Um, yeah, but other than that, uh, yeah, I do. It's okay. I'm a doctor, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, let me just take down the velvet rope. You're allowed in the club, kid. We need a doctor. <sighs> so great. Yeah. What about you, Justin? Ah, uh, you know, I don't. I think I I am not. I can I can appreciate the work that Steven is talking about and putting in and the attention to detail and, and the idea of no wasted shot. But um, I don't know. I, I would argue that it's a generational thing, but I think I'm older than Steve. So that would make me a liar, but I connect more with like my modern day Kubrick's are, you know, Tarantino and Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright, where I would argue that those three also don't have any wasted shots and everything means something. Um, and they put a lot of effort into, into telling their stories. And, when it comes to Kubrick, I just I can't I can't connect with him on an artistic level. I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited that we can talk about The Shining and and why it is what it is. But like when I watch something like uh, A Clockwork Orange, I, I 
I don't enjoy it. I like to enjoy movies, and and A Clockwork Orange is hard to enjoy. It, there's not a lot of joy in that film. And uh, like Full Metal Jacket, same thing. The beginning of the movie is is crazy boot camp shit, and then it goes into like hardcore Vietnam shit. And I just it's hard for me to watch and enjoy. Um, I can definitely enjoy uh, Doctor Strangelove, but that is that is a completely different movie than anything else he's done. <laughs> You know, it's it's a comedy, as it were. And so and it's funny. And so that's just that's just a different kind of movie. So I think I don't know if it was a, I don't know if it's fair to say that he stepped out of his comfort zone. But I would argue that Dr. Strangelove is different than the those other films. And it's uh, while it is counting down to doomsday, there's this weird sort of joy that is happening while you're watching it because it is funny. You know, Peter Sellers and George C. Scott are fucking amazing in that movie. And um, I, I can watch any day of the week. So I can say that I enjoy Dr. Strangelove, but I don't really enjoy any of his other films. Yeah. I'm a Kubrick fan. I don't know if that makes uh, sense. I, I definitely don't. I've seen 2001. I think it's boring. I never really understand it when I watch it. It took me three days to watch A Clockwork Orange. Uh, really appreciated it. But God damn it, that movie terrified me just because it's so disturbing to watch. Um, but yeah, the shining is, is cream of the crop for me. I actually liked eyes wide shut. I didn't mind it. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty solid. Uh, yeah, there's, he's, he, he's definitely an interesting person, but I, I appreciate everything he's done. And I think, I think it's the shining. I think that one, that one film that he did for me just made me a fan of him. So even if I don't necessarily like his other movies per se, it's like the shining is top of the tops for me, but um cool well yeah so then finally i want to ask this last question i know this has been long so bear with me uh but what what do you guys think was in room 237 danny walks into room 237 and we never get to see what happens in the shining i don't know if the book has anything different i think they touch on it in dr strange or i'm sorry uh dr sleep but i don't know what was in room 237 in this iteration of the shining what do you guys think wouldn't it be crazy if it was jack that was in room 237 and hurt him there's one theory that that's the apartment in boulder so um it's like an interpretation of the apartment in boulder and uh that's where jack abused danny so danny came out of that room and he was abused and she's like you did this you know he's like i didn't touch the boy well the next shot that you have of jack going to the gold room uh pay attention to the mirrors on the left hand side because when he's walking through uh, each as soon as he passes a mirror he does like a, a shake off like he shakes his hands or he does like a ring into the neck yeah he does like a ring into the neck and it's it's him basically when you mess up you know like personally you're like why did i do that oh you know that's him doing that and i think that it that it, it was like i think that he was in that room and he abused danny again but that was like their apartment or something but yeah i don't know yeah i i just the from what we had seen, nothing had really uh, hurt them physically. Uh, nothing at the Overlook has 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 done any physical harm to any of the characters. So it would make sense to me if it was Jack that grabbed him and hurt him. Yeah, and I, I'm on the same page with you guys uh, as far as Room Two Three Seven. I think it's uh, it's like Jack's energy that resides in that room. And that's why when he enters the room, he sees kind of both sides of his personality. He sees the kind of sweet side as he enters the room, and then it turns into the dark side. 
as uh you know the the woman in 237 switches from uh you know the beautiful young lady to the old uh kind of witchy character and i think that's uh, an <laughs> interpretation of the oh. heck <laughs> uh, it's an interpre- interpretation of jack's dual personalities and when he sees the bad side of himself that's when he needs to shake it off and go to the gold room and kind of you know relieve some tension and go into his alcoholism which is a big part of the book they don't go too much into it into the movie they do a little bit she explains that he used to you know get drunk a lot and that's what led to him hurting Danny uh, when he dislocated the arm but it's a much bigger part of the story in Stephen King's novel than it is there uh, but I think that's a big part of it is he sees his demon in that room I agree I agree guys I think there's uh, that's the beauty of it there there's a lot of interpretation that can be left in this film and uh, it's up for you to view it uh, once again it is on HBO Max if you have not seen it um, you should it's incredible I, I really, really love this film. So uh, let's get to our final thoughts and our letter grades. Justin, what are your final thoughts and your letter grade on The Shining? I can't wait to never watch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> More like the snoozing. Am I right? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'll, I'll visit it again in 10 years. Maybe my kids will want to watch it and I can, I can let them watch it, have their own thoughts, and then... Uh, you know, we can go from there, uh, maybe make them listen to this podcast and it'll be great. But um, I do think that there's a lot to unpack here. I, I, I don't think that anything was wasted. I, I honestly don't believe that the continuity errors were there uh, by mistake. I think everything is is genuine and, and forced. And so uh, at the same time, so uh, I do think that that this is one of those movies where there's a class at some university where you get to understand the shining and, and all the, the craziness that is this movie. And so for that, uh, I probably have to give it a, as far as my enjoyment goes, it's more like a B minus, but I can respect, uh, what this movie has to offer. Right. Uh, and I mean, it's one of my favorite horror films of all time. Uh, I've watched it a ton of times, like I said before, and to me, it's one of the rare, uh, horror masterpieces that there are out there. Uh, there aren't a, a ton of films that I would put in the same ca- uh, boat as The Shining, but to me, this is like top tier horror. So to me, it's an A plus, uh, easy. And uh, I adore this film. I, I will keep watching it, you know, and I'll keep seeing these little things. And each time I watch it, I try to go in with a different mindset. Like uh, this particular time, I was really kind of looking for the uh, native stuff because I seen a YouTube video uh, like just before that kind of pointed on, on some of the stuff. So I like to go in and just try to change my mindset and try to see different little things. And I love it. Right on. So yeah, films like this, man, films like this are the reason that people have podcasts uh, discussing movies. The reason that people have YouTube channels breaking down videos. Uh, we're seeing that too with like Ari Aster and Jordan Peele, uh, where we get us and get out, you know, and then Hereditary Midsummer, where you can sit and you can analyze and analyze and analyze. And that's the beauty of it. And horror a lot like any other, or not like any other genre, I should say you can do this. You can really get into the nitty gritty and there's so many fun, different ways you can look at it. Um, so I absolutely love this film. It's, it's easily in my top 10 of all time. Uh, it definitely climbed the ranks over the years. Um, I, I just like Steve, I went into it with a different 
viewing where I was trying to pay more attention to the background and I had to try to play catch up, I had to pause it every once in a while. Cause I'm like, wait, 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 what's that? Why is that different? The kitchen, when they're walking through the kitchen, that's a labyrinth, dude. That thing is huge. They pass like three stoves and like five sinks. I don't know, but, um, I was definitely paying attention to all that kind of stuff. So I absolutely love this film. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a masterpiece. It's an a plus 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 for me. Um, 99.9% next nothing's a hundred percent for me, but uh, yeah, I definitely love this movie and I can't wait to watch it again over and over again. So Star- yeah. Starship Troopers is a hundred percent. I don't know about that. Buenos Aires. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> One hundo across the board. Perfect. Um, yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's take us home. Well, you know, thank you for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. A very special thank you to our guest, Mr. Stephen Alva Wood. Stephen, would you like to give a shout out for your show and where we can find you on Twitter? Uh, Sure. Uh, So my show is called the Horror Squad podcast, and you can find us on uh, all social medias at the Horror Squad. uh, It's the Horror Squad podcast. I think that's where we got or Horror Squad pod. If we had to shorten the name, Um, we review horror films every single week. We just did St. Maud, which I highly recommend to people. Uh, we also did Warm Bodies and Six Sense this month. And next week, we are celebrating Women in Horror Month. So our uh, female co-host is going to pick a film that represents uh, women in horror, and we look forward to discussing it and all sorts of fun stuff like that. So uh, it's on all, you know, any, anywhere you can find podcasts, uh, we can do Just don't do The Lodge, because The Lodge sucked. I hated that movie. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. My three co-hosts oh. uh, <laughs> loved The Lodge, and I hated it i thought it was so boring i'm glad someone agrees with me it's great the lodge and what was the other one we don't like um it comes at night Is that the other oh one? god i hate that movie so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so okay well cool awesome thank you love the podcast um so remember to follow us on twitter at db crazy pod at edgy armo and at zach dale 60 where you can share your thoughts with us and we'll discuss them on our show You can even tell us what movie you think we should watch for our next episodes. Please also be sure to check out the Geek Legacy podcast with David, Randy, and Justin, as well as the Pixelated podcast with Stephen K. James. All that we ask is please don't be crazy. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much.